Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Make Talk Star Wars. I'm your host, Lee. I'm here, joined by my co-host, Jamie. Jamie, how are you? Doing good. How are you? Doing great. We are on Chapter 19 of the overall series, Season 3, Episode 3, Convert. Longest Mandalorian episode to date. I would also say probably the Mandalorian episode that felt the most different of any I've ever seen. What did you think? Uh, I agree completely. Interestingly, um, you know, I talked on the last one where um, it felt short, but it was probably the right length because it left me wanting more. This didn't overstay its welcome. I didn't feel like it was too short. I felt like it was exactly the right length. And maybe that means I'm just a fan, but love that. And uh, I, I saw a joke of, you know, we this episode puts the Andor in Mandalorian. So it's a... Uh, yeah, they're doing. They're definitely doing more world building. I actually thought of you during the episode because you've talked a lot about how you like that the television shows are interconnected. That they're they're basically filling out the world uh, through the different television shows, and they're they're all connected in some way or another. I think the connection to Coruscant here was really interesting. Now we got to see Coruscant. We got to see more of it. We got to see it after post rebellion, or I'm sorry, post empire. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, it felt like more of a quote Star Wars TV show as opposed to, hey, here's Mandalorian where Mando and Grogu go do their own thing, and then there's all these other television shows that are over here in the corner. Like it's definitely a part of to me. Yeah, it almost felt like a spinoff of Mandalorian, um, where they're introducing these two characters that came from Mando, but you know this is this is the Frasier to Cheers, uh, and this was the carryover episode that was a little bit in both locations. I don't think they're really going to do that, but that is kind of what it felt like. And I'm okay with it. Like, I liked the episode. Um, it did feel very bifurcated, and it was. I love how the TV show is being used to flesh out that this world is bigger than what you've seen in the movies, and it's bigger than what you've seen in the TV shows. There's just stuff out there, and we'll get to it if we get to it. I don't necessarily love the Marvel-esque you kind of have to have watched all of this ep seasons of all the different shows for things to make sense. So far, I feel like Star Wars has done a really, really good job of that, where if you've seen all of the Clone Wars, you're going to get some neat stuff out of understanding Bo-Katan a lot better and Mandor uh, um, Mandalore a lot better. But if you haven't and you just watched this, then until the whole Grogu somehow, somehow Grogu returned, until they got to that point, you didn't need to watch any other stuff. So they are leaning a little harder into the jumping back and forth between shows. Um, that said, I do like that they fleshed out Coruscant. I think Coruscant is really, really fascinating. I think a lot of other intellectual properties have occasionally played with the idea of an entire planet or plane or world that's all city everywhere. And I think it's neat. So I like that they did that. Um, and as much as it did kind of feel like Andor um, – you definitely didn't need to see Andor for that. In fact, if you didn't see Andor, now is when you get to see a little bit about what was Coruscant like, because you otherwise would have no idea. And so I, I do love that. I get the comparison to Andor, but, like, the shows aren't really connected from a plot perspective. I think the shows no. that are connected from a plot perspective are Boba, Boba Fett, Mandalorian, and the upcoming Ahsoka series. And then, of course, Clone Wars all in there, because I think it's all building toward a Grand Admiral Thrawn appearance and, you know, battle, and, and that's what it's all sort of – going to i understand why it felt like andor but it wasn't i felt like it was that what you that dynamic you talked about with having to have watched all of them to continue watching in the series is more relevant to the discussion of boba fett mandalorian ahsoka 
um, which, you know, of course we get Soka later this, this year, which is exciting. Okay. So we're going to go into the plot. I'm going to do the recap of the episode. We'll do best line of the episode. We'll do, um, segment called nostalgic moment of the episode and we will wrap up. This is episode three, I believe of eight of the series. Spencer will be back for either next week, episode four or episode five. We haven't decided yet. We'll just, he'll do one of those because it's kind of like there is no middle season. It's a uh, middle episode. It's either episode four or five. He'll be back for, uh, other thing going on on the other things going on in the Mangum Talks podcast channel. Spencer and I are doing a episode by episode review of Ted Lasso over on a podcast feed called Lasso Lowdown, which is a lot of fun. Check that out if you like Ted Lasso. And we, the end of the month, will be rebooting our podcast, uh, series called Line of Succession where we review the HBO show Succession every week. And that is season four of Succession. The last season of Succession, so it's going to be a lot of fun going through the final season of Succession over on the Line of Succession podcast feed. A lot of fun stuff. But the issue at hand today is The Convert, Chapter 19. Interesting title, The Convert. Felt like it was one of those titles. They've done this multiple times in Boba Fett and Mandalorian where they've given a title that could be applicable to two different characters. I mean, obviously could be applicable to Boba Fett. Or not, sorry, but uh, Bo-Katan. But also could be Dr. Pershing, right, as he attempts to convert to New Republic, and now he's what they call relapsing back into um, the Empire. So I think there was kind of a play on words there, the title, The Convert. So I I, I like when shows – and this is just – you know people like feeling smart. But I like when shows give you enough that you will sometimes but not always figure things out ahead of time. Or at least it guesses. I mean, it's foreshadowing. It's just good writing. But, you know, we saw Bo-Katan, and she I, – I had been paying attention the last episode on when she had her helmet on and when she didn't. Because she likes having her helmet off a lot in general, or at least it seems like it to us. But she was going into a battle. She was going into the water. She was going into unknown places. She was going to save Mando. So she had her helmet on more. And so I have been watching that. And I noticed when this episode started that she is sitting there at the edge of the water having just come out, and she still has it on. And I already was thinking, I hope she just doesn't take it off. I hope seeing the uh, seeing the beast in the water actually is giving her, like, an emotional, quasi-religious experience. And she's just like, you know what? Okay, like, I'm not finding anything. But, yeah, I think I just took a bath. Fine. I'll leave it on for a while, and I'll figure it out later. I wanted her to do that. And then it said, the convert. I'm like, oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. She's keeping the helmet on. Yeah, I think there was a... a- Bit of that from the character, right? Where after she went in the waters, I think she felt like, eh, maybe I don't need to take it off. I felt like it was more mindful than an accident. Right. Um, so if I can say this in a way that makes sense and isn't insulting to her, I think she was punting right then. Where it was, I don't think that she was thinking, all right, I'm now, you know, dyed in the wool. I think she's still, by the end of the episode, spoiler alert, I don't think she's there, there either. But no. mm-hmm. she just saw it. It's weird. She wants time to process, and she can always take it off later, but she can't put it on later. And I think so. she probably thought about it very briefly and then just was like, whatever, I'll leave it on for now. I don't have the bandwidth to actually make that decision. Um, yeah. But I think that she thought of it. I think that it crossed her mind. Um, Bef- maybe she hadn't really thought about the bathing in the water part. Maybe she just thought, hey, keeping my helmet on and religion, maybe that's a nice thing. I don't, I don't know if she had really thought about the redemption part of it. I don't know. Kind of yeah. depends on what she had done and learned back when she was a kid, I suppose. 
before we get to that opening sequence, though, we get the flashbacks where they, they give you like to try to catch you up to the story for the start of the episode. And when they, we got Dr. Pershing flashbacks, I, was, I knew weird stuff was going to happen. I was yep. like, OK, it's an hour long episode. That's already strange. Now they're reminding us of Dr. Pershing in the flashback. Like, OK, we're going to get sideways here. And we did. We absolutely did. It, it, it veered away from the main story a little bit. So we start with Mando waking up. Grogu is right next to him. I wonder if Favreau was writing in the possibility that Grogu was over him to do a little force healing, to help 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 him wake up. Uh, maybe he had been oxygen deprived for a period. Maybe he had some problems, whatever it was. But it, it was just interesting that Grogu was there with a hand on him as he woke up. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into that because I like Grogu so much. But it could have been a little force healing on Grogu's part. He gets up. Bo-Katan is sitting next to him. He says, I am redeemed. She says, I witnessed it. You bathe in the living waters. You are a Mandalorian again. Can we leave now? It's interesting to me how these two characters have so quickly ventured into, like, they're not old married couple, but they're certainly couple that have dated long enough that they're willing to bicker a little bit with each other. Like, See, see you, you keep moving toward the romance angle. I was thinking more of, like, buddy cop. Of like, you know, it's definitely uh, the romance angle. It's uh, no, no, it's, it's the odd couple, but like the odd couple of buddy cops. Yeah, I, I, sorry to disappoint you. I think they're going to go there with these two, and I, I, I think it makes sense because like, she's seen enough out of Mando to be really impressed by him. I think he has been lonely for a long time, which partly explains the Grogu relationship and how how that got as intense as it did so quickly. She's gorgeous. That helps. He's seen her with her helmet off. That helps. And uh, now now she's part of the same religion. It's all lining up for these two. So I, I'm very amused by the fact that, you know, they see lots of people have their helmets on all day. Mo- all the all the non-Mandalorians. But how many Mandalorians have they seen without their helmet on? That's that's like striptease right there. It's like, you know, nakedness, meh, clothes, meh, lingerie. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. All right. She, she She's the middle dangerous level of having seen face now. I would say, and she's seen his face too, right? Because he took his helmet off there for, with Grogu when she was in the room. So uh, she's seen what he looks like as well. Mando gets some of the water in a vial and he saves it. She asks him, did you see anything down there? He says, all I saw was this chasm. He said he didn't realize it was so deep. She said it, it wasn't. The bombings did that. She asked him if he saw something alive. He says, no. And they leave very – so a couple things here. One is uh, you're laughing. I wonder if that's – Back to our conversation from the previous episode where we're, we're trying to figure out if something pulled him down or if he just fell. He just and fell. He's <laughs> such a dumbass. That seems, that seems to be what it was that he fell. But I'm still not 100% convinced by that, but that, that seems to be what they're pointing to. It is what he said. It's what he thinks happens. And, and so I can more understand it and believe it. These were stairs. Like there were stairs down into the water. You're supposed to be able to go walk in. So he couldn't see down there very well. He was just following the path. And then there was like a sinkhole that had sucked up the stairs below where you could see them. So it wasn't actually unreasonable of him to think he could just walk in in his armor. They had been walking in in their armor for hundreds of years. She had probably walked in in her full plate armor when she was a kid, right where he's standing. So this was the landing pad. This is the place you're supposed to be able to go stand. And just there was a secret trap door of sinkhole nothingness so that makes it more plausible because he didn't literally just wander off a cliff but he did kind of just walk off the cliff in his plate armor in water because he wasn't paying close attention why why doesn't she tell him that she thinks she saw the mythosaur 
Uh, do you have a theory? Because I've got like two, but I don't like either one very much. I've got sure. two. One is that she it's such a bizarre thing that she's worried that he wouldn't believe her and he thinks she's crazy. Like, I think she, there's still like I, I'm a, I'm fully in the camp that Bo is interested in Mando romantically. And when you're interested in somebody romantically, you, you're not volunteering the hey, did you see Bigfoot? Because I think I saw Bigfoot. Like, you don't want to be the crazy person. So there's there's maybe that angle. The second part is, isn't the whole mythos around, mythos around the mythosaur, ha, I'm, I'm good with words, that the leader of Mandalore would eventually ride the mythosaur, right? And so maybe she is still jockeying for position a little bit with him, which is, it's good for me to know that the mythosaur is down there, if I can ride it, I become the, the blah, 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 Mandalore, et cetera, et cetera. And she doesn't want to share that bit of inside intel with a potential competitor. I, those are my two different theories. Interesting. I had the first one of she thinks he'll think that she's crazy. My second one was she thinks she's crazy. She thinks she just saw something. She thinks that it's a squid or a, that a very rat well could be or the a case, droid yeah. or something. Like or a painting, like she she is not sure that she actually saw it. That's my that's my main theory is she is second guessing herself. Um, and then the backup theory is even if she's right, she doesn't think he'll believe her. I think you definitely have to add the third one in there, which is that she may I not like believe that. she may not believe that she's seen it. I think that's oh, your spot no, on. My that. third, that's, yeah, I my third one. Yeah, uh, I think I, that absolutely has to be added in the mix. Yeah, I, I like yours, though, of the, the writing it's important thing. Um, I think she knows that he would not go try to do it. He doesn't want to rule Mandalore. So I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if her in her not 100% rational, really confused, thrown off place that she's in right then is thinking, I can't tell anyone. I have to be the only one who knows this so that I can write it. But if she thought about it, she'd know Mando was not going to go try to write it. Yeah, I got to say that uh, Bo's ship is pretty dope. She's got a nice ship. Yeah, she had, a nice, she had a nice house, too, but that that's <laughs> gone. But, man, her ship is nice. Uh, he says, bring me to my – so uh, bring me to my ship, and I'll be on my way. You'll forever have my gratitude. It was it was strange. It was like um, – You said he was going to follow her. You know, promised. You know, uh, like we meet – We meet – well, it, it is kind of like that sort of a couple meets for coffee – and then they're walking, and then the guy's like, okay, I guess I'll be leaving. And then you see the look on the girl's face like, hmm, I'm not quite ready for this thing to end. That's kind of the vibe I felt like with he, Bo. He he would follow her, but he would have to be asked kind of thing. Maybe that's it. He he doesn't want to be presumptuous because she has said she wants to be left alone. So he's saying, you know, in a more sincere way than most Southerners do it, let me let you go. Uh, I know you're busy. Yeah, and she she even approaches that, right, very next breath. And she says, well, I would invite you in, but I'm guessing – the helmet's never coming off again. He says, this is the way. Strangely enough, she says, this is the way back to him, which is not normal for her. And then it very much seemed like Grogu tried to say, this is the way. It was like, this is the way. This is the way. So Grogu is still working out the words, still very much trying to be a part of the situation. I, I do. I do have a love-hate relationship with what a 50-year-old baby is able to do. The idea of he should be. He clearly is an intelligent being, and he has a mouth and tongue and can make noises. You'd think he'd reach parrot levels of talking at some point in the first 50 years of life. It's adorable, so I I accept it. It does bother me, though. I think you could very easily write a backstory about how 
you know, he, his, how his body has to grow in order to live 900 years and how his vocal cords might not be fully formed yet, yeah. and I, et cetera. I, it, it would be very easy for the character that has to live 900 or can live 900 years. I think it'd be very easy to talk about, to write in a backstory about how, um, how they how the the body grows up in a sort of different way than we do. I am willing to hand wave it cuz it's adorable and it's cool. So, rule of cool, I'll hand wave it. I think this is the first time I've said it out loud. It irks me a little, but I also I'm, think I'm, I'm I, this. I also think we're supposed to think that Grogu is abnormal and how intelligent he is for 50. I think I I don't think that's supposed to be normal for that that age. He is very much a baby. He in all respects is a baby but is more intuitive, more knowledgeable, and I think that's his connection with the Force and the fact that Grogu is special. So he's an early bloomer? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In, he's, in, that, in that he cooed at only 49. No, the, the mental, the, 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 the knowledge, he's smarter. He's smarter than your average 50-year-old baby. Isn't that how the saying goes? Smarter look, look. than your average 50-year-old baby. Look, they, they tried to teach, like, gorillas to talk, and they found out gorillas' mouths don't do it. So they taught him sign language. Can they not teach Grogu sign language? The dude can talk. He has the talking thoughts. Ahsoka can talk to him with, you know, uh, a Vulcan mind meld. Like, teach the kids some sign language. Besides um, point, point. Sometimes I feel like you, you, your your arguments veer and then they, they don't connect where they should. Just last episode, I was talking about how Mando's not very intelligent, and you kind of like were like, ah, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say that. And now you're like, why wouldn't you teach the kids sign language? Well, maybe because Mando hasn't thought of it. <laughs> He's not that he bright. Like ten languages. How He's is not none of them? Point. How does none of them have not have an alphabet no. of hand language? They he may knows. have. I'm saying he hasn't thought to do it with Grogu. He hasn't. He hasn't sat down and thought yeah. that would be a, that would be an effective exercise for me to spend. You know, m- multiple months working on him with. Yeah, I. It, it goes another. I, I don't have a good word for it, but the idea of um, being almost savant smart in some areas, and then just huge gaping holes in your knowledge and like wisdom, like just not big areas that you're just ignorant of. I was accepting that last time. Maybe just big areas where you're just. Not very thoughtful about. Maybe the guy. I don't yeah, know. let's talk all the way around it. Let's just talk all the way around it and not say not very smart. You're using like it's Matt. You're using the but I, but I, I, for I not very smart. That he's actively smart. <laughs> Look at all the things he can do. Beyond, he's got strategy. He's got uh, a well above average mechanical skills. He's got yeah geography. Look, okay, I'm impressed by someone who can speak more than two languages. Uh, like, what, what am I going to say? You, you can't be dumb if you speak ten languages. Yeah, no, that's not true. Because that, that, there, <laughs> that is that's certainly not true. Because a, in this world, it's much more common to learn languages, uh, multiple languages, when you're right. young than, than in ours. There's droids. You can you yeah. don't need to learn anything. I've got Google Translate in my ear twenty four seven. In this world, I never learn anything. Well, I mean, we just see many characters that can speak multiple different languages. So I think what they've shown you on screen is that it's more common and it's fairly common for characters to be able to speak multiple languages. I'm not saying he is he's like mentally retarded or he's like he's like some he's like at some like level, a scientific level of an unintelligence. Right. That we would say he needs like help or something. What I'm saying is that on vast number of things, he does. He's not quick. He's not bright. He makes mistakes. 
it's okay to say he's not very smart. I think we've got to get a little comfortable saying somebody's not very smart, and we can still like them. I still like Mando, not very bright. Look, you can insult him all you want. I know you're not insulting him, but I'm going to say that you are. Mando has the idea of getting him back to Calavada. Oh, oh, that's right. Could a stupid person come up with an idea like that? I don't think so. The squadron of TIE Interceptors attack. And I noticed right – did you notice right away they were not normal TIE Fighters? They were TIE Interceptors? Because they they call it out on screen. They clearly want you to know it. Did you know it right – notice it right away? I did not. Um, I I think I noticed that they were a little bit different than what I saw in episode four, but I didn't know what they were called. I knew that they weren't bombers. Okay, the only ties that I knew, I knew that tie tie fighters, tie bombers, and you know Darth Vader's tie. Like those were the three that I knew, and it wasn't those, but it looked kind of like a tie fighter. So it's kind of like I'm, tie. It's kind of like Darth Vader's tie fighter. It's a tie interceptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's what Darth Vader's Tie Fighter is, I believe. But he, it's the the, the crooked wings. I, I make it. Yep. This is really good. It's not a visual podcast, so this is really helping everyone. Uh, but the the crooked wings, as opposed to the flat wings, uh, I did notice that pretty quickly. I thought it was strange, and then it all started to click as they did oh, multiple things. One, Bo calls attention to the fact that they're Tie interceptors. Two, Bo calls attention to the fact that it's odd that so many of those. Presumably very expensive, very difficult to get fighters are in this one place at one time. It's not common for some sort of waylaid imperial warlord. And then it all started to click. Ah, oh, that's right. And we're in the outer rim. We've got ourselves a grand, uh, we got ourselves a tar, um, uh, Thrawn. We got ourselves a Thrawn sighting. It's Thrawn. So since I still haven't seen this show that Thrawn is from, and all I know is that he's blue, I'm just going to call him Thanos. Is that okay? Can I do that? No. Uh, Thrawn I, I, you is. You can't stop me. You can't stop me. We're not in the same room. You can't that stop. That is absolutely true. And if we were in the same room, I wouldn't physically try to stop you. I would say this. Here's all you need to know about Thrawn. He is blue. He is the. He was the Emperor's man in the Outer Rim. Mm-hmm. And for the purposes of this conversation, he was not super excited about the Death Star project but really wanted to invest a lot of money into bulking up the TIE fighter fleet because he felt like TIE fighters were built cheap and were easy to kill. I don't know where he would get that information that TIE fighters are cheap and easy to kill. And so the idea that he would have like the sort of like A-plus TIE fighters really jives with his backstory. So the the little bit that I've gathered is that he's just a more vicious but also smarter and more practical version of Tarkin. Yeah, him and Tarkin butted heads. Yep, they weren't, but they were it sounds buddies. like Thrawn might have lost or not been. You know, he wasn't the one who was the big deal in four, but that he's more vicious and more capable and smarter. Yeah, yeah. and I think his timeline. He, he also didn't he, die in episode four, so that helps. Yeah, and and he he also is from the outer rim. He is mm-hmm. a he's an an outer rim species, and his interest was the outer rim. So like, he never had an interest, although he was placed in Coruscant to train. He was never really interested in staying Corsa. So, like, the, the idea that you would have a Thrawn presence in this particular part of the galaxy also makes sense. It's, it's all lining up. It's all lining up so, beautifully. So, so, when I saw that, I couldn't remember what had happened with the doctor, the good doctor. Um, and, but I paid, and I noticed that they mentioned him. And that was odd. I thought that this was the good doctor and whatever meaner actual Imperial guy was over him trying to recapture Grogu. I thought that's what this was. Uh, I thought this was an attempt to get Grogu back, um, which I now don't think that's the case. But when they came in, I 100% thought we are going to hear from somebody I haven't seen before, 
and the doctor on screen demanding the return of Grogu. I was expecting that. And I, and I didn't get it. I'm okay with that. But that's, that's what it led me to believe. I also am showing I'm not that smart myself. I might get genre savvy and guess things sometimes, but, um, then I'll, you know, completely miss the mark. I don't know. I was actually thinking that would have been a totally reasonable way for the plot to go. Um, it didn't go that way, but it, that, that made, that, that would make a lot of sense. So Mando has the idea of getting him back to Calavada so he can get on his ship so he can reinforce her. Basically like, I can't do you a lot of good sitting in this passenger seat. Get me to my ship and I can help out. She also asks him to help with the gun. So he goes in the back to shoot a little bit, but he's struggling with the TIE interceptors who are not normal TIE fighters. They are harder to hit. They are evasive. Difficult. Question. Why couldn't the like droid shoot the guns or just the ship itself? Have auto guns that are reasonably good. Is that not uh, a thing that Star Wars has? Seems like there's always a guy on the guns when it seems like you could automate that pretty easy. You would think, but you know, they got fam- famously the Millennium Falcon didn't have any sort of automation with its guns. It had a turret, so I don't know. We, we hand wave away that the Millennium Falcon is exactly as good of a ship as the plot finds interesting and exactly as much of a piece of garbage as the plot finds interesting. And that's that's a special feature of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, I, I think you would have to just fill in a backstory that this particular model didn't have that or she didn't have that type of droid, whatever, whatever. We get a shot of Grogu who is worried. Bo tells him she's not coming. She's going to come in hot. She's coming in hot. So he's got to uh, he's got to be careful. Mando mentions that the interceptors are a lot tougher than normal TIE fighters. Mando jumps out for the transfer. He uses his jetpack to land softly. Really good detail there on the sequencing of this, <clears throat> because if he had hit his jetpack before he did, I think he would have been suspended in midair near the TIE fighters who could have shot him. He waited until the last possible moment to turn his jetpack on, which was smart considering the placement of the TIE fighters. He lands. Um, Tiny he point here that ship. I loved. Go ahead. Uh, there's kind of a meme that goes around over the superhero landing of, you know, one hand and one knee and your foot, <laughs> uh, the three-point crash that would, like, shatter spines or something. I... It's a tiny point because it's never bothered me when superheroes do that. It's never bothered me even when, like, you know, non-superheroes like Hawkeye. Yeah, this this is now a podcast about making fun of Hawkeye. Um, when they do it, I don't mind it, but he didn't do it, and I love that he didn't. He actually tumbled, which was a way, like, gymnastics tumbled to absorb some of that impact. And it was a little clumsy because he's coming in hot and he's doing his best. I love that. I love that they did that probably on purpose or at least kept it. Um, it seemed very realistic for a highly capable, well-trained, has done this stuff before person who's still coming in at five bajillion parsecs of parsec or something. Yeah, that's exact. That you must have had the subtitles on to know that exact <laughs> speed. That's very good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so he he gets in his gets in his ship, goes straight up in the air, kills the power, free falls until his nose is pointed directly at the interceptor jolts the power, hits the guns, kills one interceptor, boom, one interceptor is down. Mando then tells Bo he's headed her way. She's trying to evade a lot of them. She tells R5 not to worry. She grew up flying those cliffs. Right about the time she says this, she scrapes a cliff. And then she says, of course, it's it's been a while. She goes in low over the water, and we see Mando come in from the backside and blow another one up with Mando's theme plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she thanks him for the backup, and they keep going. Two more to go. They swing around some cliffs, then get to another one. One down, one to go. Bo says, on it. She splits around and blasts it. At this point, Grogu feels comfortable enough to pop out of his shell. Really funny little thing Grogu did here when Mando leaves to go get on his ship. The second he walks out of the cockpit, Grogu goes, beep, 
and just presses the button and his shell comes up. <laughs> it's just kind of funny how he's like, ah, I think I'm good. Dad's leaving. I think I'm good. Yeah. It's, he, if dad looks worried, shit's gotten real. Yeah. He'll take care of it, but it's turtle time. I feel like Grogu's, the fact that Grogu has the power to press the button on when his shell goes and covers and when it doesn't is trouble for a kid. I mean, think about this. If you gave a three or four year old that button, how much they would do it when you didn't want them to, like not in this highly stressed situation. I'm talking about just a normal everyday life where Mando's like, look, you have got to finish your vegetables. And he's like, boop, it presses the button. You don't want to give him that button power a hundred percent of the time. So here's the thing. That tells me that you don't have a three-year-old because you know what they do when you say that, you know, oh, well, you, you have to be all done with that. You need to eat your vegetables now. They don't have a button, but they do have the ability to make their legs stop working and their mouth stop making any noise except out in public for as long as it takes. They can, they can, they can shut down uh, also uh, in their own way. Uh, anyway. Glad you told me that. Didn't know kids could do that. <laughs> glad, I'm glad I've learned that about kids. I, I just find the button funny. I feel like he, it, it he, a, a kid could use that to frustrate an adult pretty quickly. Although he tend, it tends now, the button for the shield tends to be just a stand-in for Grogu's panic level. It seems to yep. be just like a very quick on-screen barometer of how scared he is. But I'll say they're increasingly not needing it because it's clear to me that they're spending more and more money in the animatronics of Grogu's face. And I feel like I can see specific emotions on his face. They were always good at it, but they have gotten so good that I feel like you can see little quick changes in emotion on his face. You almost don't need the visual of, I'm scared, I press button. Instead, now you can just have ears drop, eyes lower a little bit, and you know Grogu is scared. So I think that you're right, but there's an interesting thing here. What is the most panicked that we've seen him? In the past, the season, it's when he gets out of his pod and on foot goes to try to save Mando. So it works. You're right. In this one, that was that was a shorthand for Grogu's not going with him and Grogu is worried, but Grogu thinks other people can handle it. It, it was not when he hits a certain worry threshold, the button comes down. It's the button comes down because he's worried and other nuance because it's not you know, when he was most worried. He got out and did something about it. So this is worry with trust. When yeah. I open this, life will be normal again. We'll be okay. I'm going to go take a nap until y'all make this okay again. Da- Dad and this really nice lady, uh, who he yep. does seem to, he does seem to like Bo-Katan, which is interesting. Um, so they, uh, we get this comment, not bad for an antique, talking about Mando's ship. Mando asked if she took any damage. She said just her shields. They go, uh, Mando then brags a little bit. Uh, that he didn't take a single bit of damage in his super fast Naboo starfighter from the Imperial flute. He doesn't play around. Um, so I, I did love, uh, you know, he's like, okay, I'll come get that last one. And she's just like, Royal boom, impressive thing you didn't know I could do. And I just kill it without even breaking a sweat at that point. And I love that because he was ready to come do it and it would have worked fine. And she would have let him. She didn't seem bothered that she he was coming to quote unquote save her or whatever. They were a team. But it was a subtle reminder to him and Grogu in the audience of, I'm really good at this, too. I'm fully capable. I maybe can't take on seven of them at once, but once you made it one-on-one, this was a cakewalk. Oh, Plus, yeah. Bo, yeah, they they do a lot to, to make sure everybody understands that Bo is very much Mando's equal, I think, yep. in just his her ability to fight. Then we see Bo say, 
uh, no, as Mando sees something and they go over a cliff and see that Bo's house has been destroyed. She says, those mud scuffers bomb my home. Mud scuffer is a term I think we first heard in the last episode of season two of Mandalorian. Gina Carano's character said it as she was trying to bust in one of the doors. She was messing with a gun and she said, ah, mud scuffer. Blah, blah, blah. So they're trying to keep some, some continuity and at least the universe of what people use as epithets. Cuss et cetera. So I, I read an article once about what are different cuss words in throughout time in human earth history. And it was fascinating. It was basically, you know, what was taboo? Like what was whatever was heresy, whatever was actually unspeakable for like your grandparents becomes the swear words of your generation over and over again. So, you know, it was religious words. Well, they became swear words. Then they became things that anybody would say and bodily functions. They were the thing you can't say. And then there are the swear words you're not supposed to, and then they're nothing. And I, I, ever since I read that, I have been watching and paying a little extra attention to what people swear when they're not speaking noises. And what would a mud scuffer be? Well, it'd be somebody who can't fly, somebody who can't go into space, you know, a, a, a guy who's just got dusty feet because he's grounded and he doesn't know how spaceships work. So it's stupid backwater, probably. You know, I like that. that. They don't deserve like to have high interceptors. or po- They don't deserve to fly. They're terrible. I like so, that. Anyway, That's a, love yeah. Love yeah. That I like that a lot. That's my, I think that makes perfect sense. That's going to be my head cannon. Um, she's pretty upset. Sends a honing missile at one of them, killing one of the bombers. Mando says, Bo, we've got company. Bo, listen to me. You've got to get out of there. There's too many of them. We've got to get out of here. A ton of TIE interceptors show up at that point and they leave the planet. She says, that's a lot of ships for an imperial warlord, basically saying, there's something else going on here. I think it's all hints to everybody that this is thrown. So I, I want to know your thoughts on on one big thing. Why did they blow up her her house? I don't think we have an answer to that right now. Okay, because I think it's something that will we will get an answer to, but I don't I, think we I, have a firm I answer right a now. Good answer, because that's actually the one thing that bothers me, because um, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, I can say why did they send three at first, and then the bombers, and then the big thing. I, you got a hand wave sometimes why you start fighting slimes before the dragons show up. Sometimes it just happens that way. Um, but if they were trying to capture Grogu or trying to kill them, they wouldn't send bombers to blow up the house. They would only send things that could shoot at the ships or they would hold off the bombers as a threat and say, like, we're hovering over your base. And we're going to drop the bombs unless you come talk to us or something. So they're either in psychological torture mode or he wants to take over this planet or he wants to make Bo-Katan no longer a threat. Does Bo-Katan and Thrawn know each other? Yeah, they well, yeah, they should or she. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I you know what? You're you're way down a a thing that I had. I had a mental answer for. I don't think this is we don't have it. They haven't seen this on screen, but this is how I was thinking of it. We we got an explanation that there is scuttlebutt that Moff Gideon has escaped on the way to a mm-hmm. war tribunal. I think I could be a thousand percent wrong. This is what I'm thinking. I think Moff Gideon is now with Thrawn and Moff Gideon, none too happy with Mando. I'm not sure he's still chasing baby Yoda. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but certainly not happy, happy with Mando who was very responsible for his capture. Yeah. I think that, the, the, they were chasing Mando, and when it became clear 
to Thrawn and, and Moff Gideon who were watching this all go down that she was harboring Mando and she was working with Mando. Then she became a, she became an enemy and then it was just like, a, just root her out, blow her up, et cetera. So, so I think Mando, yeah. what I'm saying in bio, this is Mando is the target. So you might be right, but if that's it, it's stupid. If they had not blown up the house, they would have went back to her house. Then they could have blown it up with them inside it, like while they're sleeping. Or they could have shot it or brought the fighters in first. The bombing is if the bombing's timing was intentional, then it's like psychological trying to get them on the run and trying to just mess with them, which is possible. I find it more likely that the timing was incidental, but the attention of blowing up the space was on was on purpose. Um that they don't want Mandalore to rise, and they had been like keeping tabs on Bo-Katan and saw that she went to Mandalore and she came back. All right, well, we got to blow up her, effectively her castle, because, you know, she doesn't have any base on Mandalore. This is her family's summer home or something. So we have to blow that up and try to kill her. And, oh, well, she's still alive. Send in more ships. Try to kill her. I think I think she might have been the target here. Maybe uh, I don't. Again, I don't. I don't think we know. I think this is some. This is a more to be revealed situation. Mando sends her coordinates for somewhere they won't find us. They both take off into hyperspace. Cut to the opening credits. Do 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 do. Then we cut to the podcast to get to the opening credits. Then we cut to Coruscant City Plan. I I have a feeling that once we get into some of the Coruscant stuff, the the recap will go pretty quickly because it's a lot of like running around. Then we cut to Coruscant City Planet. It's got. I'd like to point out that when we cut to Coruscant, we saw. Big cityscape of Coruscant. It got an oh wow for my wife. She was she was like kind of taken aback by what she was seeing on screen. We cut to Dr. Pershing, who was speaking to a very large audience. Notice he's in the same opera house. I believe it's the same opera house. It certainly looks like it. As Palpatine gave the speech to Anakin Darth Plagueis eyes. If you if you do a screen by screenshot, looks exactly the same. Shrug. Irrelevant. Well, yeah. <laughs> Drug. You don't like attention to detail if it's not re- immediately relevant to the plot? Eh, I'm saying if it is, that's cool, but it also could have well, gotten blown up you just, it also You just be, did a five-minute diatribe into what the mud scuffers meant. That didn't really have anything to do with the look, plot I'm just, I'm just saying. Shrug. Look, most of the opera houses probably look like an opera house because they need a certain amount of space in the bombs. They need a certain amount of seating to be worth their space on Coruscant's tightly packed city. There's probably only like two different, uh, you know, shapes that an opera house can be in this place. He says that his technology was twisted by someone who wanted to use cloning technology to, to secure more power for himself, clearly talking about Moff Gideon. But despite the shameful work of my past, I hope to help the New Republic in any way I can. I assure you my original intentions were good. He pauses, notice his hands are fit. Anytime he talks about helping the New Republic, his hands are like fidgeting and he looks pretty uncomfortable. He uh, explains... That when he was young, he lost his mother, the person he admired most. Her heart gave out. Had simple organ cloning been available on my home world, her death would have been easily preventable. Organ cloning, something I'm, I'm really hoping we live long enough for. Uh, being you, me and you, Jamie. Let's let's oh, yeah. let's, no. let's hold what? out long enough for that. Look, I'm just nice. saying, I'm planning to live 900 years, and so far, so good. I have a zero percent death rate so far in my life. Could not live 900 years because if you were going to live 900 years, would not be able to talk right now until you're 50. He, I'm a early bloomer, my man. He said it was at this point 
that he was going to make his life. He wants to make his life work to help others. He then talks about his work. He talks about the, there's a little throw in about the, um, Caminoans, Caminoans, you know, with the, uh, that, that were in episode two that, that were yeah. responsible for the clone army. He does throw that in. He, but he talks about how, I guess, in Camino, when they were cloning, they were doing it from a single DNA strand, right? Which makes sense. So that they, all of the resulting clones were from Django Fett. He is talking about combining multiple strands to have the best genetic attributes of both owners. So it seems like a different cloning process. For what it's worth, we already do that. It's called sex. It's a lot easier than what he's doing. As he's leaving, multiple people are coming up to him to talk to him. Uh, a lot of Coruscant aristocrats who seem to really suck. Uh, you know, these people really do seem to suck. Yeah. So at this point, I really thought that he was a respected doctor and he's giving like a keynote speech about his research that he's working on. We later find out he's forbidden from doing this research. So he must be part of the dog and pony show yes. uh, that they've thrown to make the rehabilitation process seem good because he's not a peer of these people. He's not working with them. He's not doing any work about this at all. He's not brought in because of his research. He's being brought in because his research sounds cool and he's there for a poster child for the rehabilitation process. And you're right. The uh, the aristocrats, yeah, made, it makes a lot of sense. I kind of love this part. Like the guys who are clearly like old money in some way saying, oh, New Republic, Old Republic, Empire. It's kind of all the same. And I love that so much because it tells us a lot about the Empire. The Republic's not as good as we thought it was going to be. But it's also very realistic. How would you have anybody who had experience here. They would either have been part of the rebellion and not on Coruscant for the last 30 years, or they would have been a big deal here in the meantime. Anybody who was not a big deal and couldn't work with the Empire would have been killed or had all their stuff taken away. So you've got new money and you've got, um, I'm going to uncharitably call them collaborators. That's unfair, perhaps, when the entire planet and half the galaxy is together, but collaborators. And that, so that, that's all you've got here are collaborators and and new money and maybe some people from the actual rebellion itself. Maybe. Yeah, I think it's a I think you make a good point, which is that at first it seems kind of like a let me tell you about cloning TED Talk. And in reality what it is is let me be a little propaganda for the amnesty program. Yep. And I think that's really what it is. I also think that like we have to see, and this this episode does a lot of it. At some point in the story, if they're, if they're going to fill all the, in all the gaps, we have to see where the New Republic was inefficient, was p- even potentially maybe evil or wrong about things because something gave rise to the First Order. Something gave rise to Leia basically going out on her own and, and having sort of her own like new thing apart from the government. What the fuck happened to this this new republic, this new great thing to cause a world wherein what was it? What what did they say the difference the the time frame from episode six to episode seven was something like ten years or something? Um, uh, Fifteen, I think. Yeah, whatever that was for the the first order to have arrived. So I loved how they did this. Getting ahead of ourselves a little bit at this point when they were talking about this, I thought that's brilliant having an amnesty program kind of thing. That's wonderful because what are you going to do when half, 
maybe more than half of the galaxy either were in the Empire or at least collaborators. And what do you do when 10% of the galaxy were actually in the Empire? If you go around with the whole uh, just following orders is no defense um, Nuremberg trials, you're going to kill 10% of the galaxy? You're going to do a new genocide just executing all the old Empire folks for the crimes they committed under the Empire? Or you're going to keep them in jail for their whole life? Or you're going to keep them... Like, what are you going to do? Um, and the idea of... Well, we want them to actually just be treated as normal people again. But when you're this big, when you're talking about 10, I'm, I'm making up 10%, but 10% of the galaxy, you need a bureaucracy to do it. You need it to be a bit impartial. You need to have some weird arbitrary rules to enforce it. And then as it goes on, the line's really, really fuzzy between we want to help the people who are good hearted and did what they had to do to stay alive and feed their family to reintegrate into society and, you know, do what they want to do and what they can do and be nice to we are having labor camps and concentration camps and mind washing. And, oh, my gosh. And this seems like it might be a little closer to the second one than the first one. Uh, I can see how easy it would be to sell this, even without this propaganda guide, but so easy to sell it as why we need to be compassionate to these people. We need to set them up. But, you're, of course, we don't want empire people running around all over the town. We'll keep them in designated areas. And we'll have them check in every now and then so that, you know, so that their voices are heard. And if they're having any troubles, we can help them work through it promptly, a.k.a. parole officers and ghettos and uh, taking away their names to give them new numbers, just like they did with the stormtroopers as a whole plot point. This was really well done on the subtleness of something that sounds good and made me proud that the Republic was not like the Empire. And then, holy crap, they're just like the Empire. Yeah, I don't know about just like, but certainly, I, I'm exaggerating. But you, you, you know right. what I'm getting at. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that this this is how the narrative has to go about the political landscape and the ti- the political timeline post Return of the Jedi. The New Republic couldn't have knocked it out of the park. Like it couldn't have been a really efficient, really effective, reasonable government that everybody wanted to get behind that didn't make mistakes. They, you wouldn't have this massive first order fleet without it. So like this made I, it all made a lot of sense to me. As much as I hated to see the New Republic failing, and I think there's a, a lot of instances of them failing uh, as a government in this episode. It ha- that that's that's how the story has to progress to get to where we got in seven eight nine. So Amnesty Scientist L fifty two is Doctor Pershing. He uses that name as he introduces himself to the other people at Amnesty Housing. Before we get there, though, the droid is telling him about all the fun things to do on Coruscant, including the gardens that are in bloom, and the holograph uh, uh, the holograph museum of extinct animals. So you can go. I guess I missed to, that part. I didn't hear that part. That's great. I like that. So you can go to a, <laughs> a museum. Where you can see holographs of extinct animals. Sounds like oh, that they literally just did the whole, you know, paved paradise. They cut out all the trees and put them in a tree museum. Look at all the animals we killed to make Coruscant. <laughs> you can play with them. They're dead, but you can play with them. He uses that name as he introduces, he uses the name uh, L52. So he introduces himself to the other people at the Amnesty Housing. He introduces himself to everyone, including, including G68, who Dr. Pershing clearly knows. He was someone from Moff Gideon's ship. Uh, she was someone from Moff Gideon's ship. I heard 
he escaped to a war tribunal. We hear about Moff Gideon and someone else says, ah, that's not true. They hooked him up to a mind flare. So there's our first mind flare reference of the episode. I really, um, I, I, I did have to do a double take. So as much as I'm the one who brings completely irrelevant references in, I, I thought it was going to, that's a Dungeons and Dragons thing. Like it's, it's also a Star Wars thing. The machine is a mind flare also. I guess that's what it, that's what we're seeing in the episode. You, you tell me. You saw well, it? I, nothing. They, that's what they called it. But I, we, weird to have two different science fiction fantasy things with a similar but different thing with a very specific, and I thought, copyrighted name. So that was a little weird to me, but whatever. Yeah. G68 is Aliyah Kane, which the name just nail, hammer, head. Aliyah, a liar. Kane, 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 I am going to be. Oh, gosh, you're. You know, you're right. We've gotten so unsubtle since the days of General Grievous. Yeah. And well, Sidious. Well, Sidious, he is a name he made up. So it would, it would make sense that he would he would call himself something bad uh, because he is he is on the dark side. Grievous is a grievous error on George Lucas's part. Haha. <laughs> yeah. Always terrible. That's always your go to example. And it's always right. General Grievous, terrible name. I, I'm going to keep making I'm going to keep saying it until it stops being true. He thinks, uh, he says, thanks to the amnesty program. So, so Alia Kane, she says, thanks to the amnesty program, I could be helpful to the New Republic. And then they all toast to the New Republic, and it seems fairly hollow and drab. He sits down, and they make small talk. There are a lot more of us than I expected. And then we get this this line, it's not how the Empire would have handled it. <laughs> so you're right. Like, they're true. still not the same. They, <laughs> yeah. they are at least trying. And this is clearly not a really respectful way to handle things they've taken their names away they're in a ghetto or something but it's also not a labor camp like they have a great deal of autonomy and freedom and you know they, they're afraid of being caught saying bad things or doing bad things but it, it's parole they're, they're on a very tight parole and maybe a tight parole is correct when you're talking about crimes against humanity and war crimes and stuff maybe maybe that's okay I do question the wisdom of taking all of these uh, ex-fascist officers and and soldiers and putting them all in the same barracks. That's yes. that was a that was a decision probably based on it's cheaper. But I I kind of hate that a little bit. So then they start musing about what they missed from the empire, and he he, he starts this whole rap about how oh, I'm glad the empire. I don't miss anything. Don't don't any, no 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 don't no. We're not talking about oh, that. Okay. We're talking I'm about. Good boy. I'm a good boy. We're talking about the small things, and Pershing says, well, you know, in, in that vein, maybe the yellow travel biscuits. Uh, and that prompts some conversation and conviviality. Pershing lays down, and he's watching something about Coruscant. The explanation in this little thing he's watching about Coruscant calls it a handful of planets. It's in a handful of planets called a Ecumenopolis, which is a citywide planet. And while it's often called the center of the galaxy, it's not precisely located in the middle. And right then we get a cutoff. And we know this from other canon, including Legends canon, that, that Coruscant is not precisely the middle of the galaxy. It's kind of – it's close, but it's not quite there. There's a couple more Akumanopolises that are actually closer to the center of the galaxy. But Coruscant is like the big capital. It's where the seat of government is. It's where everybody is. I, I mean most galaxies have a black hole, a supermassive black hole in the center anyway. Um I, I I found that as a weirdly why are they talking about this moment? But sure. Yeah, I think that maybe just to orient people. I don't know. Or maybe yeah, I mean, maybe maybe useful. when you talk about the outer rim and actually knowing the outer rim is literally the outside rim of the galaxy before you're not in the galaxy anymore. Um, that that is something that I do kind of like 
about some Star Trek and Star Wars do it both. The idea that a galaxy is enough. You could have an entire like, oh, we're spacefaring and we never leave the galaxy. A galaxy is big enough. It's got enough planets that you can just never really find the end of it kind of thing. Um, no person can ever visit all the planets in a galaxy. But still, it has an edge. And then there's not even dragons out there. There's just nothing forever, effectively. So I, I like that. So Pershing gets a knock to the door. He opens it and he sees no one. He eventually looks down to see a big chest full of the travel biscuits he likes. I thought and he was going to get beat the hell up. I thought he was going to get bum-rushed and beaten up somehow. But I, I like the travel biscuits. The interesting thing about the, the travel biscuits is these aren't re- – these don't seem to be recreations. These seem to be actually Im- issued by the Empire because right? they still have the Imperial seal on them. Yeah, they're so, leftovers. Yeah. So Pershing um, wakes up the next day, and he's at work, and then we hear, happy uh, Bindu Day. Do you know what Bindu Day is? Uh, in context, it seems like Monday. Not, no, it's Friday. It's the last day of the week. Friday, okay. And he's given another set for archival. The guy stops and says that Dr. Pershing's talk the night before was really good. He didn't know he had somebody so experienced working there. Pershing tries to stay humble. He says, ah, I'm just happy to do whatever's asked of me. Pershing sort of hints he wants to go back to work. So he does. Cut to a big city center. Pershing and Elia are walking around eating there. Some sort of like ice cream pop-esque type thing. So the ice cream pop that glowed, it was – um fine like okay they're doing sci-fi things and if you could like that'd be a gimmick people would make their food glow if it were that easy we probably disney probably did that so they can sell glowing popsicles at disney world yeah this is the this is the spencer type take where you're spencer's always like looking for the disney influence that i didn't think we were going to get from someone who liked the sequel series and actually likes ray as a character i didn't think i was going to get that from you that sort of cynicism but uh yeah maybe maybe that's cynical ray's just awesome May, I, I, so you might ah. be right. You might be right. I also think there's a world where if John Favreau heard that, he would think it fairly, fairly bizarre that people thinks he actually got a note from Disney management that said, need glow in the dark popsicles in season. Like that's, that's a strangely specific note to give him. They made Ewoks so that they can make more toys. Am I wrong? I, I don't know. I didn't, didn't talk to Lucas about it. Uh, well, I did. Um. <laughs> Pershing says, uh, oh, notice, oh, if we're, if we're, we're talking about how we don't really love the popsicle scene, notice how Elias is red. Oh, I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's, oh, they should have just given her the name Batty McBatterson. That's kind of what they're going for. <laughs> we see some street magician working. And then she explains that there are a trillion permanent residents on Coruscant, a number that I must admit is very hard for me to wrap my head around on a single planet. I understand that it's a lot of big buildings and it's around the entire planet and the sky rise after sky rise. But the concept of one trillion people on a planet is a little tough for me to take in. Yeah, I'm I'm because what Earth has eight billion. Right. Yes. Okay. so. You know, actually, it didn't phase me, uh, partially because numbers that big don't mean anything to, like, a human brain. It's just, just a lot. But if you c- compare to Earth, if we've got 8 billion and we still have oceans, they have the whole planet covered by cities. So they don't have oceans. What percent of the Earth is covered by oceans? Like, two-thirds? Am I making that up? Couldn't tell you. All right, we're going to say two-thirds. And we're going to round up, to, because we're population's growing, that we got 10 billion. If you cover the whole Earth, we'd have 30 billion. 
and we still have forests and farms. So we would have 30 billion over the planet with our current population density if we just like covered over the oceans. So if you then say, hey, we need industrial centers that stretch for miles, but let's get rid of the forests, you could easily fit, you know, three times as many people on Earth as we have right now. Yeah, I think the thing that like made my brain fritz wasn't necessarily the fact that you can fit a trillion people on a planet. It was the concept of a trillion people being able to live on a single planet, like just the like waste, like you just think about the, the the sewer system you'd have to have for a trillion people, or the amount of food you'd have to be covered. I mean, they don't they don't do any farming or any like natural harvesting on the Wait. planet. It's completely covered by cities. So how are you getting all the food into the planet? It just seems like oh. a fucking massive operation. I, I would like to preempt the comments. Um, I think I just did my math wrong, and I was thinking of a hundred billion. Uh, to get from where we are to 100 billion would be three times as many people. To get from where we are to a trillion would be 30 times as many people. There you go. Uh, and then also no oceans. I'm going to assume that Coruscant is bigger than Earth. Probably is. So that you literally have, you know, just more surface area. That's what I'm going to say. Pershing says that the idea of a trillion people makes him feel pretty small and, and she says, well, all these people working together to make something better makes me feel, he says all these people working together makes me feel rather significant. And she says, I don't know about that. She says, um, he basically says, she, she says she likes to be a part of something bigger really. And, uh, then they start talking about their backstory a little bit. And wait, Ilya wait, the ex fascist likes to be a part of something bigger. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, wow. Ilya admits she was trained on Coruscant as a child and now she's found her way back there. And I guess this is her own little hero's journey in her mind. Uh, Pershing says he is a bit upset about leaving his work unfinished. That little comment, that one little comment he makes about, Oh, you know, I'm kind of like bummed out that I miss my work is, is unfinished. That I think is what she springs on and starts just pulling at the thread, pulling at the thread. And she does some uh, outright entrapment. Let's not hide that. But I think this is the comment that sparks it all. At least that's from my, my take. Uh, I, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not the same type of lawyer to really say, I don't think anything she does here is entrapment. Uh, you don't think when she's like, I know how to get you to the exact place to go steal the thing. Let me show you how to get there. Come follow me. Yeah. Okay. Well, he, he wanted to do it. Like he, he said, I want to do it. She's like, it's against the law. He says, oh, I won't. Uh, okay. I'll do it. Even though it's against the law. Every step, she just gave him an option. She did not force him into any of the illegal steps. The actual doing, she said, okay, well, here's how you do it. Come do it with me if you want to do it. Um, but every step, she presented him with an option with the open downside of you can walk away. Like until they were on the train, he could have just walked away at any point. She was, And it, there is some fuzzy lines in Earth uh, criminality of you know what counts as entrapment. And if you're bullying or forcing someone to do something that they weren't otherwise going to do, that's entrapment. If you are giving them an option of doing something that they're choosing to do and you're giving them an option to do it in front of the police kind of thing, then that's just a sting operation. Okay. I see. I could, I've set you off with the word entrapment. How about bitch set me up? Yes. Can we no, go we're to bitch set me up? Uh, because it seems like she, her, yes, Pershing, 
clearly had this nugget of, man, I wish I was still doing my cloning work and it could have done a lot of good and, and all of this. But she exploits that feeling oh, yeah. in conversations with him, in she's giving an him enabler. options, at, at, in the pushing him. I think we're meant to see on screen that he never would have been in this situation absent her. Like that we're supposed to know that for sure. Spencer's not here. I have to do his job and mine at the same time. I'm sorry. You say entrapment, one of us is gonna like get weird and dorky about the law. I work with a lot of lawyers and like I I, I start to learn the words that will set like yeah, it's just words to stay away from. It's almost like like my wife is a, a PhD in English. I know not to use the word ironic around her. Like, I just know, like, I, I'm not going to use it right. There's always going to be some technicality around the word ironic. I'm not, I'm not going to get it exactly right. Steer clear of the word ironic around English PhDs. In front of lawyers, here's what I've learned today. Just don't use the word entrapment. Say, enable, bitch set me up, uh, any of that stuff. Stay away from a dormant commerce clause and interstate commerce. Just don't say those either. Trust me. It's a bad, it's a bad mojo. So he says he had a lot of work. Left unfinished. It can help a lot of people. She says, well, you should continue doing it. He points out the ethics of cloning are complicated. She says following orders blindly is how he got in trouble in the first place. That if he can help the New Republic, what's the problem? Sometimes you have to trust your gut. The New Republic. Uh, by the way, Uncle Lee out there to the kids. Anytime somebody's explanation for why you should do something is, you know, you should just trust your gut. I always am a little skeptical of that advice. It seems lazy. Seems like lazy advice giving. Hey, trust your gut on this one. What does the fuck does that mean? Trust your gut. Look, look. Uh, many, many years ago, Stephen Colbert told me that you always, I always trust my gut. It's where I keep all of my food. The New Republic is trying their best, but they're struggling. There are a lot of capable people who want to help. You understand what I'm saying? They walk on and they see a rock. This coolest part of the episode to me. I'm just gonna say, I, I, I just love the idea. I, I love the Mount Everest. I just love the idea that they they saved one teeny little spot where they're like, "Here's the natural planet," and that's it. You've you've got your fill. Like it's this entire fucking planet. You can't see so much as like a blade of grass growing growing through a walkway. Here it is. Here's here's Coruscant and all its beauty. Check out the rock. It's just kind of funny to me. So so I I will say the exchange where she's like. Go ahead and touch it. There's no signs, no rope. Go for it. I mean, it's a rock. Touch it. And she knows that one of these little guard droids is going to come bitch slap the ice cream out of his hand for it. I kind of love that, actually. You know what that isn't? Entrapment? That's not entrapment. No. Do you know what it is? Funny? Prodding? Poking? Prodding? Enabling? Hilarious is what it is. Uh, She she played a prank on him and got him caught. Oh, well, oh, it's, wow. oh, okay. it's a little foreshadowing, a little foreshadowing. She, she, she told him to do something he wanted to do, told him it'd be fine, knowing the police were going to jump in and take his ice cream. She did say afterwards, though, let me buy you a photon fizzle. Here is a Jamie hmm, shrug detail photon fizzle. The same thing that in episode two, uh, when our guy Ben Kenobi is with the big heavy set uh, diner owner. There's a big thing of photon fizzle in the back, and he orders one. So there you go. Okay, I like that. That's the connection. No, I, I buy that. She'll egg him into things, foreshadowing, dum-da-dum, cut to so Pershing, interrogated by the droid. With the whole one rock left thing? Yeah. Well, not yes, one rock left, but that that's where you can see it. But, okay, I, I buy that it's like the one rock exposed to the clouds. Yes. 
But, like, what's it sitting on? It's sitting on more rock. Like, if you go to the bottom of any of these buildings, you'll find rock eventually. For sure. This is yeah. the only place you can see it. That either is just kind of laziness or is really telling. If it's really telling, what it tells is the people here have the mentality that anything down the elevators, anything that's not open to the sky, like, doesn't count. Because if this is the only place that is available with the open sky on these walkways, you would have a very strange relationship to elevators if you lived on Coruscant and the sky and the down below. Because, you know, it's like the Jetsons. It goes down forever. Who knows what's down there? We know because the Jetsons told us. But the idea that if it's down there, it doesn't count or something, which is really interesting. It makes you wonder who lives down there. I just took it, and I could have just been breezing through the scene, but I just took it as this is the only place you can see Coruscant surface. You're not you allowed to the bottom floors? Well, even I guess the I guess even if you go go below that it's all built on top of something, so you just you can't see it physically. I don't know. That's that's what her explanation was. So I think that's what we have to assume that it's all built on concrete. It's all built on top of everything. Cut to Pershing being interrogated by some droid. This seems like it would annoy the shit out of me. The droid's asking if he's able to get along, if he's angry at his coworkers, if he's angry at the New Republic or its representatives. He asked the droid if he could continue his own research recreationally. The droid, checks his file, says this type of research cloning is prohibited. It asks him if he has any other questions. He says, no, thank you for being an important part of the MGC program. Have a nice day. And off he goes. Seems like he has to do this shit every day or at least with some regularity. And it seems call like it, that. Call it weekly is probably accurate. Seems like it would suck. He walks out. Outside he sees Elia, Elia, whatever. Uh, what we were talking about the other day, my research, I've been thinking about it. You know, I think it's important. And in the hands of the New Republic, it could be used for good. I just need to prove it. She says, sounds like you want to continue it. He asks how. So this is probably a good part, the argument that you were putting forth when we were quibbling over the word entrapment is – this is probably a good example of it, where he starts this conversation. He says, yep. hey, what we were talking about the other day, like, what, she didn't even bring this up again. He started into it. Uh, and she says, okay, well, it sounds like you want to continue it. And she, she gives them the path, but he, he brought it up again. Yeah. So, so I, uh, hashtag not legal advice. If you see somebody with, um, Adderall and you walk up and you say, hey, I'll give you a hundred dollars for your Adderall. And they sell it to you and they've never sold it before. I think that that's actually – I think that it would be entrapment. But if you say like, hey, you know, you can make a lot of money for that Adderall. And then the person the Adderall says, well, I'll give it to you for 100 bucks. No longer entrapment. Like you, you, there's a certain amount of opening the door and showing it to somebody versus trying to get them to push through it. Kind of how much is it that the person got bullied into it by the police versus, you know. They took an opportunity. They were a suggestion was made, and they said, "I love this idea. I want to do crimes." So I guess it just depends on if you think of this as one long conversation, then it's probably a little bit closer to what you're describing as the word entrapment, because she does bring up when he says, "I, I liked my research." Basically, she's like, "Well, you should keep doing it. You should keep doing it." But if you think of it as different conversations, then I think the, the argument starts to fall apart because he brings it back up multiple times to her. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is, you know, she 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 did, you know, screw him over. She did set him up. She did prod him. She did try. She planted a lot of seeds. But that's kind of all she did. She planted a lot of seeds and then gave him an opportunity to crime. And he just said, you know what? You've been talking a lot of sense. I like the cut of your jib. Crime it is. 
Yeah, it's definitely it does not meet the legal definition of entrapment does, however, meet the legal definition of bitch set me up, which is just a tad below entrapment and codified in the Constitution, as we all know. Please so continue. Might be, it might be entrapment on Coruscant because they've got all kinds of different laws. Uh, we don't have mind flayer laws. Uh, so, you know, maybe they just do things differently out in space. I think if anything, it's maybe less peeled back. Like, like it's, it's like more allowed what she's doing, it would seem. Uh, yeah, um, I think so. But I think that the Republic guards have a little bit more leeway uh, under the letter of the law than most countries on earth give. I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to make that up, but don't, let's not go into that. No, she says you want to help the new Republic. They just can't see it yet. She says they can get him a mobile laptop station or mo- mobile lab station, but he has to go outside his designated lab perimeter. He says, I can't do that. I'd be sent back to the reintegration Institute. She says, well, uh, you've, I have a lot to make up for. She talking in, in herself. She's like, she's, First person, she says, I have a lot to make up for. If your research really is important as you say it is, I'll take that risk. Pershing is left there thinking it's too dangerous. She tells him to sleep on it. So this is another example where, like, if you can think of it as one long conversation, I think it's more she she prompted him. He said, yeah, I'll do it. And then they went on. But the reality was it wasn't one long conversation. It was multiple. And, like, this is the next day he, like, comes to her and he's like, Hey, I want to do this. Like, right. So so in, in, in law, there's this really big idea of how much did a person do intentionally? Um, and how much time did they have to process it and think about it? There is some leeway given for heat of the moment, you know, uh, you know, somebody makes you mad and you see red and you act violent. That's different than I was sitting at home plotting how to punch somebody. He had time. If he thought she was wrong, if she didn't, if he didn't like it, if he wanted out, he had plenty of time to quietly contemplate and decide. No thanks. Um, it was not a spur of the moment decision. He intentionally decided this amount of criminality is justified. So, so I think another thing here that's frustrating him that causes him to tip the scales to say, "Yeah, let's do it. I'm in. Let's go outside the designated perimeter. Let's actually break laws." is when he's being told basically archive and destroy all of this perfectly good IP, this tech that is beneficial, that the Empire created, that's helpful. And when he questions it, the only answer he gets is, you know, we got a lot of shit to do. And he and the guy talking to him actually says, we still have to decommission the New Republic fleet because the the New Republic fleet that was used to fight the Empire, they decommission a lot of those um, spaceships. And part of that fleet and that whole discussion about is it appropriate to decommission and scale back the military now that the empire has been defeated comes up in the book Bloodline, which is a Princess Leia themed book where she's arguing back and forth about like the appropriateness of doing that. Spoilers, Princess Leia does not want to decommission the fleet, does not think that's a good idea. And I think that that plays into where we get with Princess Leia in episode seven, eight, nine, where she basically grabs a fleet. And bails and is like, I'm just going to do my own thing out here. Hmm. Princess Leia the pirate. Well-known Warhawk. He says, it's fine. I'm sorry. Forget I ask. He's told that what he's doing is true. What you're doing is truly helping the new Republic. Yeah, this is bad management, right? It's like when you when I'm managing Jamie, Jamie says, hey, why do we do X? It doesn't make any sense. And I go, just do it. And then there's a pause. And then I go, but you know what you're doing is really helpful. Like, it's just so 
mind-numbingly surface level that, like, for somebody as intelligent as Pershing, it has to drive him fucking crazy. And that gets borne out in his next round of questioning with the droid, where the droid's like, hey, are you pissed off at the New Republic? And he's like, ever, 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 ever like, he's, like, breaking. Because obviously he is. This whole sequence annoyed the shit out of him, that you would be destroying perfectly good IP, perfectly good tech, simply because the Empire had made it. Presumably that droid knows he's lying, right? Yeah, absolutely. If the okay, if it's if it's if it's even if the droid is even worth if the droid's even good enough to warrant the act that it's doing, then it would have to know he's lying, right? Right. Because if the I, droid can't notice he's lying in this situation, then they shouldn't be doing the entire exercise at all. Right. Uh, well, well. So with Earth American bureaucracies, a lot of the time it really is an automated phone service where it's just check the box yes or no. And they've given this one a body, but it could really just be a, look, we have you on record on this day saying that you're happy and saying that you're working hard and such. I mean, for our you know, unemployment and stuff these days in America, we have similar checklists that people need to go click once a week. So it could be that. And it could just be they don't use checklists and emails. They use droids because droids are things that are cheap and easy in this world. I do think you're right, though. Like, droids have cameras for eyeballs for reasons. Droids can pick up on things like your temperature and your blood pressure. They could easily have every droid be a truth detector if it was worth the money. This is like the one droid where that's the number one goal. Be slightly, be polite and professional. Ask your questions. Figure out what the truth is and whether he's lying. That's one, two, and three in that order. I think about the the example in universe and actually within the same television show that would give me an indication that maybe the droid is capable of doing this would be the IG droid, IG-11, because IG picked up on, like, IG was very capable of picking up on, like, hesitations and, like, when Mando was even, like, catching feelings, IG, IG was like, oh, it seems like you're caring about me, like I'm a real entity. I am not. I am not a real thing. Like, he, he was super, that droid was super perceptive about how people were interacting, their intonation, everything. Hard for me to believe the New Republic wouldn't put that IP into this fucking droid. Yeah. yeah. Be, being good at telling who's lying is probably the number one thing you want a patrol, uh, a parole board interrogator to be able to do. So he walks over to a different unit, rings the doorbell. She answers. He says, mobile lab station. Let's go get it. Dun, dun, dun. It's on. She says, good, tomorrow night. And Pershing nods and walks off. I think this is the first – like, so there were multiple times – during the conversation where – and I'll be honest. I was writing notes during all of this, so I, like, I wasn't really, like, doing any, like, mental foreshadowing. I was trying to, like, get the notes down. But, like, where she would say things to Dr. Pershing where my wife was, like, er, er. She was, like, making noise about – noises about how little she trusted this character. But I think the moment I got it was when he did this and he walks away from the door and her face drops as soon as he's out of, out of sight. Like she's not, she's smiling in front of him. And then as soon as he leaves, she drops. It's like, yeah, it's just like a little bit of for the camera to let us know this character is not everything she's cracked up to be. Um, so I do want to tell you when I'm not smart and when I'm stupid, I actually thought that was her getting really thoughtful. Cause I, I thought there was some kind of like romance broom between these two. I mean, they oh, take on a oh, date. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, so I thought much. that was her like being thoughtful and trying to figure out what second. she thought about him. And, just like being serious and like being thoughtful and planning. I thought that was her thinking face uh, and that, you know, they had a thing going on. So, um, Hey, I like when anybody shows humility on the Magnum talks podcast network. So I don't mean to beat you up for this, but I am, I am questioning 
how you could think these two had a romantic thing, but you still don't think Bo and Mando do. So, first of all, Bo and Mando are not that tight, and if they do, it's because uh, the plot writers wanted them to for plot purposes, because that is not what either of them are like. Second of all, I read there was a study recently that human beings are only 40% accurate at telling when someone's flirting with you, which means you literally would be better off flipping a coin or just every single time assuming you're wrong. Like whatever you, whatever, every single time you're 40%, you're more inaccurate than accurate. You're worse than guessing as a human to tell when somebody's flirting with you. So I'm just, I'm very human, sir. I think that, that, that the mental gymnastics you did there on Bo and Mando is very interesting. You said if they do it, it's only because the writers wanted them to. And yeah, that's purposes. why anything happens in TV show. I know how every... literature works. <laughs> okay. But all right. Yeah, so, so plot. Okay. I ask your wife, the English person, there's plot device. There's different kinds of plot devices. When you have somebody like George R.R. R. Martin or Robert Jordan who makes the characters, and then lets the characters do what they're going to do. He's writing them together because he thinks that that's what those characters would naturally do in this situation. When you're doing it as a plot device, it's, well, we need them to care about each other, so even though the characters would have no reason to fall in love, we're going to manufacture reasons, or we're going to hand wave and fudge it. That's what I mean. That I think if it they get together, it's only because it is as a... Um, it, it It's... They've made it make sense. It's it wouldn't come completely out of blue. I'm not sure I would hate it, but it is not the most natural thing for these characters. It would be a contrived plot device. It's convenient. I, it's not a natural evolution of the characters. I, I tend to disagree with you because of where where Bo is. Like she's she's lonely. Like Bo is at the lowest point we've seen her in pretty much anything. Uh, it would make sense that she would latch on to somebody and want want a partner in the galaxy. So I don't know, but but anyway, we're not there. We're not at that point. Yeah, um, man, you can be you can have a partner that you're not in bed with, man. Man, you can be like bros. I'm okay with them being bros. Why? Why are, do you think all Mandalorians are asexual? What? Why? Uh, be, because you said they're not like that. If the you you said that no, Bo I'm saying that the two of these. Neither of these are big, very uh, romantic. Uh, they're not. Um, Oh, so they have something in common? <laughs> look, look, okay. Are you going to make me look up and read off the lone wolf speech from um, The Hangover about, well, we were lone wolves apart, but now we can be lone wolves together. Yeah, there you go. That's what that's what okay. Amanda is going to give her right you, before he puts a little string I, on I'm her saying, finger. I'm saying they're non-sentimental lone wolves. They're not looking for romance. They are not romantic people. They're not going to be romantic together. You're saying, yeah, but they're going to be not romantic while they're romantic. They're going to be not romantic together. Emphasis on the word together. Exactly. It's exactly what I'm saying. You you said it perfectly. Okay. Well, you told me this is probably going to happen, and we'll just have to wait and see whether it actually seems um, earned. I feel really pretentious saying this. I feel like a theater wonk or something saying it, but we'll have to see whether it's organic, whether it's earned, whether it makes sense, or whether it seems – contrived because I, I accept coincidences. I accept things being convenient. That's how stories work. But there's a difference between something just being convenient and things being like really ham fisted and contrived. We'll okay. See. Cause I already think it's earned because I already think that these two have like the fact that Bo continues to help him, even though he's the one who has the dark saber, she wanted it. It's just, like, there's so many things 
that okay. point point to me that Bo has feelings for Amando that are above and beyond uh, what just a standard, you know, old old order Mandalorian person. Maybe, but anyway, you're just cuts the next day, and Pershing has his mischief coat on. I don't know if you caught that. The mischief coat that everybody has. It's the the doc the Doctor Tra- the the Dick Tracy coat with the pop collar. Um, he says he goes up to her. He says it's for the New Republic. It's the right thing to do. Officer G six eight Elia says follow my lead, and they keep walking. She takes him. Uh, tells him to take a deep breath. It'll be fine. So she's constantly like reassuring him on this walk, telling him everything's going to be okay. Chill out. It's all good. Remember why we're doing this. They keep walking. She tells him to keep it together. He says, you're better at this than I am. She says, you'll get the hang of it. They keep walking. She's able to sneak into a gate mechanism that sort of looks like the Metro. And lo and behold, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know, it is the Metro. They get on a Metro. They even do that cool thing in the filming where the Metro starts and everybody just sort of sways to one side real slow as it, as it begins. Like they even did that in the filming, which looked realistic. Um, so uh, they sit down in the subway type thing. They take off. We see beautiful shots of Coruscant. They really spent a lot of money, I think, in this episode of filling out the Coruscant landscapes. Like those are those are I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if they spent a lot. of effort. I know that they spent a lot of effort because it is detailed and beautiful. Pershing asks her where they're going. She says, Imperial ships will have mobile lab stations, right? He says, yeah, but they're Imperial. She says, well, not anymore. Now they're just junk. So she says they'll slip in and find what they need. He asks her if she's done this before. She says, where do you think I got the biscuits? Um, any idea what the – yeah, it's pretty good. Any idea what the other species is on the train with them? Did you Have you ever seen the species in Star Wars Universe before? No, I accept it as awesome. And it made me think of, like, the thing from Mon- – think. But I don't know. More beautiful shots of Coruscant. And we see some droids approaching who are asking all the passengers for their tickets. So this is the part of the part of the, the train ride that's like um, Polar Express when Tom Hanks' character is coming around asking, Can, let, me, let me punch your ticket. And the one kid has lost the ticket, so they're running to the back of the train. That's the scene. So I am bothered by one thing here. And this is – I don't even think this is nitpicky. It's just like it doesn't make sense. Okay, fire away. So she wasn't hacking these doors. In going from one train to the next, they were doing something that was allowed of passengers. These doors open when you open the door, and then the next door opens, right? I'm not, I don't know about allowed as passengers, but yes, they were, they did open. Yeah, okay. We make jokes about the Empire not having safety railings, but they let passengers leap over lightning chasms at a hundred parsecs a parsec? That is, a, that is a really fast speed, as established on this podcast. Yes, that's the speed of plot, sir. Parsec per parsec is exactly what speed I that's need. A, that's exactly how fast Mando is going to lean in for the kiss. Helmet to helmet with Bo-Katan. A thousand parsecs a second. If you have a helmet to helmet kiss... Um, it's like right when you used to rub your doll's face together with your kid. Like two G.I. Joes just put their face together. Like That's, that's what it is. You're holding up two Mandalorians and you're swishing me and saying, now kiss. So, but jumping over these things is really, really unsafe. Having the doors open at all is really, really unsafe. Um, oh, shoot. I just talked myself out of it. That's probably part of the setup. So they probably tells- are locked. They probably unlocked them specifically for this. Maybe. I mean, now that we know it's all, <clears throat> now that we yeah. know it's all. It'll be part of the setup now. Okay. I buy it. I- now that we know it's all a DC mayor situation, it's a it's a bitch set me up situation. 
everything can be we can be paranoid about everything in the episode, right? Because <clears throat> we're all wondering what was the setup for Doctor Parson. Um, they get to the next car, and he tries for a joke out Tong's days. Am I right? You know what Tong's day is? Monday. Wednesday. Friday again? I don't know. Tong's day. Tong's day is the middle of the week. Hump day. Uh, that gets nothing to the new train car, and she says I, we'll have my, to work on that. Tong's day is hump day. My yeah. tongs, my tongs, my lovely judge tongs. Check them out. They keep going, and eventually have to make an oh, escape. Oh, I've got to keep going with this one. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna bring them back another day. They do, and they get to the shipyard. They walk over and see an Imperial Star Destroyer, and I must say this about the Imperial Star Destroyer: when it's in the atmosphere. It looks much smaller than I remember them being in the galaxy. There were different sizes of Star Destroyers, though, right? Or I would hope. I would hope so, because this thing doesn't look much bigger than maybe two football fields. And I thought the ones that we were seeing in space were like the size of a quarter of a planet. Like, right. this it looks, looks very different. Bigger. I mean, this looks bigger than a B-Wing or something, but it didn't look big no. enough that it would fit a diplomatic ship into its cargo bay. Right. Yeah, so, the, so it, I, I, it's either – it's one of two things, right? It's it, it's what you're driving at, which different sizes, and this is just happened to be a smaller version, or inconsistent. We know that there were at least two sizes of Star Destroyers because there was like the Super Star Destroyer or whatever. Yeah, that has a different name though. Well, even that could have been a nickname. could have been Star Destroyer, Super Star Destroyer. You know, you talk about the, the C-130 airplane. Well, there's actually a C-130i and a C-130j, depending if it has guns or if it has this or that or – which paints on the outside has a different letter, but you kind of sort of call them all C-130s. I bet there's different sizes. I ex- I am that's my head canon that I accept. They're all called Star Destroyers. And they all look the same, and they all served a similar purpose, like cutters. You know, you're going to be on a cutter. Well, how many feet was your cutter? So yes, yeah, so this was just a small Star Destroyer. So he said he looks over her and he says, "I've never done anything like this before." They walk up to it. She keeps egging him on the whole time, telling him how great it is, et cetera, et cetera. He tells her if she's sure they're alone. He asks her if, if she's sure they're alone, and she says yes. The ships are all inoperable. No need to guard them. That made me go, what? Yeah. So, like what? I, I actually would accept that they wouldn't have, like, a person out here because it's out in the boonies far away and because it's easy to put a droid or a camera. They're not going to not have cameras, though. It's it's the future. Cameras are everywhere in America already. Yeah, he Dr. Pershing's too smart for this, but he was hearing what he wanted to hear at this point because he wanted to he wanted to do this, I think. Well, I think that's the explanation. So he, what he would say is these are scrapyards and like if you go to a junkyard right now, maybe they've got a camera. But if you go to like a small town junkyard, what are they going to have? Like maybe It's hard for me to believe there's any part of Coruscant that doesn't have a camera and isn't being patrolled by some sort of droid. I mean, you're probably right. So the walls should be droids. Why are the walls not droids? They get flashlights and they go inside. As they walk, she says, I must have passed you on Moff Gideon's ship a hundred times. I should have stopped to introduce myself. He tells her, they don't have to apologize. That's not the way things were back then, which is probably serious vein of truth there, that it was not common in, in the Imperial Protocol to just stop and be like, hey, how you doing? How's your day going? But here's the thing. In the New Republic, it's still not the way things are done because they take your damn name away and they give you a letter and a number. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't. Did we know? Shadow of the Empire in the New Republic. Do we know that they took the name away, or did they give a name and number in addition to? Why? Well, the fact is that this is the first time they've apparently said names, and when they all introduce themselves in the compound, they all use their fake letter and number. 
like him and all those other officers that he sure everything you're saying is true i just don't know that that necessarily means they said you're not allowed to use your name why would they not use their names when they were introducing to each other because i mean because presumably this is the identifier that they have in that area that's probably what they've i mean they've clearly been told to use the new number but that is a far cry from you are you we are wiping your past clean you are no longer allowed to use that name i don't know i'm not sure that those things are necessarily the same but it could be very well could be uh i look but i think at a bare minimum what you're driving at is right which is they dehumanize the the casual audience has to be going Hey, what the fuck, New Republic? We we spent three three really good movies rooting for you to win, and now look what you're doing. Yeah, the, at best they are dehumanizing and brainwashing people, and then treating them as subhuman. <coughs> my name, she says, my name is Elia Kane, or as I like to call it, a liar, brother who turns on other brother biblical story and he introduces himself as ben pershing he says it's perfect he's only going to take what he needs he says i remember first time i was in a place like this i couldn't believe i made it so he goes on this story about how basically when he say what they're building together yeah he, he goes into this whole thing about how they his mother was a doctor and they they through the story we get at the beginning of the episode and this, it's clear that his diet, the doctors on his home planet didn't have new technology, didn't have up-to-date technology. So when he first got into an Imperial ship, I think he was pretty excited by all the tech and that he had access to all this resources and this IP stuff. And he's just telling this story. And, and, and the more he's talking, the more it sounds like he's wistful for that first time he was on an Imperial ship, right? Like he's framing it in a pretty positive way. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an oversight of the writing. I mean, I, I, it didn't bother me. It still doesn't. You know, if you had somebody say that they were a World War II pilot for Germany, but they were like non-political, they were just a pilot, and they later did, you know, reform or something. They said, you know, I still love flying. I remember the first time I went up with my mentor, and da, da, da. like you'd have that kind of memory. You wouldn't expect them to not love the first time they went flying, even if they were correctly appalled by what they had been doing or something you know i don't know i don't think in a vacuum it's a problem i think they're the whole story together is that he's just continuing with the biscuits Uh, he's a little bit well not only he okay so actually i like that he he's a little bit too wistful or a little bit too ambivalent between the two organizations exactly we're all the heads of the new republic yeah. So he says, I um, hear something. That's what it is. She says, it's the ship settling. Yeah, sure. It's the ship settling. That's right. She'll keep a watch. He gets the lab. They start walking out. The door closes in front of them, and then they hear footsteps. She tells him to go the other way. They run off. They run. They run. They keep running, and then they see a spotlight. The ship above, and the New Republic soldiers pop out and place him under arrest. As he stands there, she walks in front of him and takes the mobile lab from him, and her face is pretty darn serious, and that is the big reveal that she's been in on this the whole time. She takes the lab from him. She walks over with the guards. He goes to follow her, and they put him in cuff. cuffs. Now we have... A Mon Calamari standing over him. He goes to explain himself. And the guy says, no, 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 no. She's already submitted a report. She's standing there watching him in a window. I thought this was a one-way window. 
clearly a two-way window, though, because he's like yelling, looking at her. Um, he says that they understand the transition could be difficult. Indoctrination by the Empire can be hard to overcome. He then is set near a mind flare. We finally get to see one of these things. And they tell him they're going to turn it on. But don't worry, we've, we've basically ratcheted it way, way back. This is just to heal now. This, we're not using it like the Empire would use it. And he's the whole time yelling, you don't understand. She brought me here. It's a trap. It's a trap. I just wanted to help. She set me up. She set me up. Elias watching them through the window and someone says, I thought he was doing so well. You've done the right thing. This is some sort of superior, I guess, or supervisor or something to Elias in this program. Uh, she says she knows it will help him. He says, it's nice to know for every failure there is a success like you. This should offer him some relief. And then we see the mind flare get to work. She asked him to stay. She asked to stay. She says he relapsed, but he's a friend. I still care about him, which is sort of strange that she calls him a friend because she didn't know him on Moff Gideon's ship at all through her own conversation. They've been sharing biscuits and stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I hope the inclination. An, an unclear it, amount of time has passed with them knowing each other. I hope the, the, yeah, I hope the implication there isn't we were friends from before because they clearly were. Um, he tells her he, she can stay. So she stays, but as she watches him go through the treatment, she cranks the intensity way up on the device and we can see the immediate effect on Dr. Pershing and she eats a biscuit as she watches. So I've got two questions here. Go ahead. First, for the world building, is it that the parole boards on purpose use other like we're using her to test him, like the whole setup itself was planned with the government's involvement? Or was it she was doing all this completely on her own? And near the end, she said, hey, I know this guy's going to do something. Do you want me to, like, go forward with it? So was the temptation in the first place set up by the government as a test or or was it just she did all that on her own and the government at the end was brought in uh, as if and she just told them, yay, he's doing this on his own? I don't think there's any way to know. I took it as she just ratted out on him and then then they set the whole thing up. Um, not not that this was all a preconceived test for him, that it was just he he's being brought to a legitimate amnesty program. And she is a legitimate person in the amnesty program, but she ratted him out and then they set it on. Okay. So at first when I was watching it, like at that moment, like when they were talking mid mid scene, I really thought that this was a test, um, like from the government and that she was part of, like she was there on purpose mole to go test people and to see if they can tempt them into back backsliding. I think that's not the case. Um, it was an interesting headcanon that I've rejected, but I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was an interesting idea. The second one is, why does she do this? What is she doing? Why? Why all of this? Why? Why? Why any of it? What is what? Why? Because I don't get it at all, and I assume that they'll tell us next week. But it bothers me right now how little I understand anything about what she's done or why. I think when they comment that Moth Gideon escaped and she said I really try not to think about him anymore I think that was a big 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 massive lie so she is working for him and he wanted this guy dead no he wants Dr. Pershing back I think this is the way to get they him off course huh? well no no so I, I actually had that thought 
and I expected her to reach over and turn oh. down the Monflayer, like let them think he's been flayed, but now I'm the only one who knows that he's not, and I know that he has this dark thing, and now you know they'll think that he's been lobotomized, and they'll stop watching him, so now we can escape and get him back. But she ratcheted it up. She's flaying his mind, which I have to think means he's going to be pudding. So I will bet you a lot, a lot of money he's not going to be pudding. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to the story. Uh, I think that that you're you made you made an assumption in that very loud. There's an embedded assumption in there that what she's doing is going to completely remove all of his learning and knowledge. He's going to be like you even used the word lobotomized. I don't know if that's true. I, I thought this was more torture than anything else. Um, so you and think this is her way of getting him to turn back to the Empire? Yeah, she's uh-huh. torturing. She's 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 low key hiding that she's doing it, ratcheting it up so it's more torturous on him to create more resentment in Doctor Pershing to make him dislike the New Republic even more. Everything she's done in this whole thing has been, in my opinion, devised to make Doctor Pershing hate the New Republic. And it's been pretty effective because I bet when we pick him up next episode or whenever we pick him up again, he's not a big New Republic fan. Huh. That's an interesting idea that even the double cross is to try to radicalize him. Yes, that's what I think is going on. Because I think that um, interesting. this idea, this this cloning, I like. I think the cloning thing that Moff Gideon was doing is – ultimately connected to trying to get the emperor back in a body. Yeah. And that he, he does that, that can't have been given up because we see the emperor in a body in a clone body later. So, and, and I think that like part of how this has all made sense in my head, which I could be completely wrong is that they needed the Spencer earmuffs, the midichlorian count on the blood of Grogu to make the host even a body that the emperor could inhabit, that could oh, even be the better of two an, clones, in, like an inhabitable host. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's why they needed Grogu so badly because his his M count is so crazy high. And I think that they're going to continue this, but he obviously needs Doctor Pershing back. And a great way to do that is to use a mole that he still has from his old ship that is now in the amnesty program to turn him back. Interesting. Also, just an interesting parallel. You know, what is what was a big, big theme in Andor is how does someone get radicalized? And now we're seeing it in the reverse. That's yep. interesting. And I'm I'm going to try to pay attention to it in that light. Yeah. But now all of this falls apart. If in the next episode he's. Pudding. Can't speak, can't speak in pudding. Right. Then 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 it was just I, I don't I absolutely have no idea where where. Why we even had this forty-five minute uh, diatribe? Uh, but if what I think is true, to sell fizzy pops. Yeah, well, that, that is that is one thing uh, they're probably going to be able to do from this, especially green ones or especially red ones. But I think if we come back and it's just that he was tortured, he's in pain, he's resentful, he's angry at the New Republic, then I think we've got our answer. Okay, then we get the concluding scene, which is we see the Mandalorian ship fly and then Bo-Katan's ship is with him and they fly and basically what Mando is doing here is when you I know you don't like that I continue to explain it this way but it's how I'm explaining when you bring your girlfriend around how about this I grew up in an area where the 
culture was a tad different than some of the women I dated in college. Let's just say it that way. So if I would bring the women home from college, I'd say, look, I need you to like maybe not dye your hair this weekend. Let's let's cover the tattoos. Let's not cuss. Let's no, no how about no day drinking? I think this is kind of the speech that Mando has given here. It's like, hey, could you please be on your best behavior here? These are my friends. Let's can you please not embarrass me? That's kind of the speech we got as they fly it's into the good cave. Thing the people you knew in high school never did day drinking. Not well in college. College. Okay. Um then we get to them landing and they're hanging out. And um Basically, Mando is trying to explain to Paz. We got a Paz sighting. Paz Vizsla is back, which we, is a character that we got in the middle of Boba Fett. And he explained, Mando explains to Paz Vizsla basically like, hey, look, I'm redeemed. I'm back. I'm not an apostate anymore. And he's like, you're a liar. And he's like, no, I'm not. So they go in to see the armor. And this is a part that I feel like I didn't understand. I'm interested in your thoughts, but it seems like we just have to write in some sort of magic backstory. What happened when the armorer took the vial of water and dumped it into the pool of water and there was a reaction and she said, oh, now I know you're telling the truth. What was that? So I'm not sure. I'm choosing to believe that it's something not super weird and it's more of the waters from Mandalore have a certain pH or chemical thing just call it a certain salt, like a certain, a, very, a specific salt chemical. And, you know, it is known that this chemical that they use in their filming process reacts to it. And if you mix chemical A and chemical B, it glows. So it is known as a parlor trick back in the day. And now it's a test that actually is effective. That's kind of convoluted, but I think that fits and is just simple. I like it. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I, that, I, that it's not it's not magic. It's some sort of like real basic chemistry yeah. reaction uh, of the particular water. Yeah. Okay, the I like waters, it. The, either they've got like the living water aspect of it is there's certain bacteria in it that when they you know mix with vinegar they explode and glow or something yeah. like those like beaches it. where the water glows bioluminescent or whatever. Very very good. This is this this is the way. I'll take it. This is the way. Um. She says, you are redeemed. This is the way. And Bo Katan Kreese, you too are redeemed. Bo's like, well, wait a second. I'm, I'm not even a part of this shit. This is like getting baptized when you just, you thought you were just going to church and all of a sudden you're getting dumped in the water and you're like, whoa, whoa, what happened here? This yeah. is kind of what happens to Bo. The armor, and I got to give you credit here because of the very first scene you connected of this season, you connected the fact that there were a lot more Mandalorians here. Uh, you know, with the armor, with the fact that they sucked at fighting, like they're new recruits. Of course they suck at fighting. At the time, I thought, mm, I don't know if I buy that. At a, as I've marinated on it, it makes more sense. And this also made me think that was true because it seemed to me like the armor who couldn't wait to exclude people, couldn't wait to tell people you're not a part of this is now big tent. She's like, nope, hold on. Technically, you're one of us for a little while, so why don't you stay around? She's in recruiting mode. She's trying to increase their numbers as much as she can, which would explain why there's more more Mandalorians than we would expect initially, why they suck at fighting, and why Bogotan is giving the longest of leash, the most possible grace in being, you know, inducted into this cult. 
she's allowed to be there because I think the armor is trying to bolster the numbers as much as possible. So not to undercut you when you're telling me I'm right, but I, I don't know that this is her grasping at straws, really. I think it really is just this is the way. You bathe, and so you're redeemed. Look, look, you went in the waters. Your sins are washed away. And so it's really just part of it. And the idea is maybe maybe it's grasping. She wants numbers. Maybe it's hot. Today. I didn't say she was grasping. I said she's in recruiting right. mode. So she right. she sort of is framing this as like, yeah, I think, I think 100% to the letter of the law, she's right. But I think this whole like, why don't you just stay here and check it out? Why don't you just, just hang around for a little while? Yeah. And when you decide to leave is your choice. That felt like a little recruiting. So maybe you're right. I think of it less of bolstering numbers and more of, holy shit, this is Bo-Katan Kreese, who now came to us. Like, yeah. not on her knees, but she came to us. If, if we play our cards right, we can, like, you know, we don't care about her, but we're not going to turn down an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that. I big see that big name in the big. I I agree with that. And if Plus, if there's if there's a, a distinction, believer. if there's a distinction between what you're saying and what I was saying, then I wasn't saying it appropriately because okay. I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to say the basically the same thing, which oh, is okay. this is. This is strategic on the armorer's part here. She likes the idea of adding to their numbers, adding Bo-Katan specifically. And then I, she probably notices that Bo, that Bo and Mando have a connection and having them both together probably increases the likelihood that Mando stays in line. I mean, you know, Mando has, sh- has shown that when he really cares for someone, something, Grogu in this case, he's willing to leave the path, you know, he likes Bo. He likes Bo Katan. I think they. I think they actually said the the path uh, in previous seasons because I compared it to the eightfold path of Buddhism on a podcast. But the um, if if Bo is not walking the path, if she's not in the way or whatever, then the likelihood that Mando might step out of line is increased. So it just makes sense all the way around for the armor to make this move. I thought it was a, it was a sort of savvy political move on her part. So I bet she's actually on her back foot here now. Also, I bet she is ad-libbing a little bit and kind of just um you know the masks help and she is really good at her role and her role is powerful wise inscrutable mystic uh, but she is right now in live time processing we could get to the waters and go back to the surface and come back up alive mandalore it might be an achievable goal for us yeah so she's processing that in real time and we don't see any of that processing. So maybe I'm projecting, but she should be. She should be actually struggling with that right now. And so she's, you know, she's checking the boxes. She's doing what she needs to do. But her her worldview actually should be rocked a bit right now. She did not think Manda was coming back. She thought it was a fool's errand to go to those waters. Yes, that's true. So anyway, you know, the other people thought it was fake. I I do think that she thought it was actually cursed whatever that means radioactive poisoned just you'll die um so she's having to completely shift her goals her plans hell she probably wants to go to a pilgrimage why not yeah i i, I agree with everything you said there too I, I i think that there's a fair read that she would be 
blown back a little and not really knowing how to handle this because yes, the fact that Mando shows up with Bo-Katan and <clears throat> she can, has a pretty substantial argument that Bo-Katan can be a part of their creed as long as she wants to going forward is important, but more important information that she's getting is that Mandalore is inhabitable. You can go there. You can get in the waters. Like this is not an out of reach thing, which is really important information for her. Notice that after Bo-Katan basically gets like blessed and into the group, people are coming up to congratulate her and she sees, she looks specifically at the skull shot of the mythosaur on the wall. So I loved, loved, loved um, the acting in this scene, which sounds weird when they're all wearing masks from Mando and from Bo, because they both got so emotional in their own weirdly specific ways. Where Mando, when she said he was redeemed, he almost like did a little foot shuffle. Like he, he, he didn't know what to do with himself. He was so overwhelmed with emotion. And that's, I mean, that's how he shows it because he's stoic and that's what he's trained to do and he has a mask on. But he was so relieved. You know, he was just, you can imagine the face he was making of relief that he was back on the way. He had been brought back to his people. He was saved his soul or whatever. And then Bo-Katan's shock and her, just, her emotional reaction just being like freeze deer in the headlights. Everyone's patting me on the shoulders and I don't know what to do about this situation right now. That's true. Loved it. It was amazing. I saw that too, but I also did see her look at the Mythosaur skull. Uh, she did. Which is She's thinking really hard about that. And, and it could be just, she had a effectively religious experience. She might be, you know, not a fanatic, but like a believer, a convert. She might be like, well, you know, I'm not living here, but fine. I'll keep the helmet on. Like it's a thing. Sure. Okay. I saw the Mythosaur. Or it could be, I've got plans. All right. Damn. Let's make the bet now. Do we see Bo-Katan without her helmet on the rest of the season? Do you think she's going to leave the way, leave the path at any point? I would like to punt on final episode, same as we kind of did a final episode with um, Mando. But I'm going to say we do not see her remove her helmet in front of another living person, at least until the final episode. Final episode is a wild card because it's just what do they want to set up for the next season. But until then, no, I don't think she takes it off again. I think I agree with you. I think if I had to bet on it, if she if she takes her helmet off in front of anybody, it might be Grogu, because I don't think I still don't think in her heart she's really believing this shit, right? Um, but I don't. Grogu I won't think, tell, and she'll lie at that point. Yeah, I think, but I think she sees the political. She's doing the political calculations, and she sees the benefit. Plus, she doesn't have a home anymore. This is a place for her to stay. Yeah. I mean, God, she's she's homeless right now. So this is a this is a, all around a good a good setup for the people who are. Clearly increasing their numbers, clearly doing some recruiting. They get Bo-Katan, and Bo-Katan has a place to stay for a while with her buddy and his kid. All around wins. Okay, into the recap, into that that episode. <clears throat> Let's jump to best line of the episode. Do you have any nominees for best line of the episode? Any lines that jumped out to you as particularly good dialogue? Uh, I kind of liked somebody yelling at a Calamarian. It was a trap. I kind of liked that, actually. Oh, Yes. I didn't even catch that. God, I yeah, can't that. it was fuck that, me. That, I'm that, too I'm too focused on the opera, the size of the opera house, and if it connected to episode episode three. But god damn, that's good. It's a trap to Avant Calamari. Shout out to you, Jamie. All right, there you, I I read that online. Somebody else caught it. Fuck, I'll that be was honest. good. No, yeah. I'll, I'll, you, you want my humility? I didn't. I didn't notice that myself. I, I had. Damn, a point I wish I. I wish I caught that. Um, so, I am going to say that one is. 
honorable, honorable mention. mention. There, there, there's better, the, but go ahead. The winner this week is not because it's a well, super well-written line of dialogue, but because it is so fucking important to the plot going forward, I think, is you are redeemed. This is the way. And Bo-Katan Kreese, you too are redeemed. I think that we can put that on a T-shirt for the episode. I, I think you're right. If I was going to make it just more pithy and fun, I would have it be Bo-Katan. I would have it be, this is the way, Bo-Katan. Just the fact that that was her response. Actually hit me in a similar way as that. That was me saying, she's she's on board. People kind of only respond with that when they think we're all on the same page. There's been plenty of times when somebody, like, said it to him, and he didn't respond. But that's that that's an amen of the congregation to each other. Yep. Yep. Anyway, Absolutely my- great. So that's the best line of the episode. Now we, we transition to our last segment, our last part of the podcast. It is nostalgic moment of the episodes. We typically like to pick out a moment of the episode that brings back some Star Wars nostalgia for you. I can tell that the opera house is not going to be it for you. No, um, no, it's not. But I think maybe we can whoop, we can zoom out for me. Probably the strongest nominee for nostalgic moment of the episode is just the cityscapes of Coruscant. Mm-hmm. Um, from the prequel movies where we got so much Coruscant to the very final scene of Return of the Jedi, which is the first time we ever saw Coruscant on the screen, to all of the different books and comics and things where we've gotten so much going on in Coruscant. That's obviously one of the, I would say behind Tatooine, maybe the second most important planet in all of the Star Wars universe. I'm going to say all the city shots of Coruscant. What did you think from I actually agree with you completely. Uh, and, and I even tied it. Yeah, I joked about how much it felt like Andor. People say that. And in some ways, that's not fair. In some ways, that's just saying it's urban sci-fi and urban sci-fi feels different. You know, it felt like Blade Runner. Andor felt like Blade Runner. But it, it's not that it was grittier when they were in on Coruscant. In fact, in some ways, it was less gritty. Than, They're selling ice cream pops at Disney World. I know. Like, like Mandalore, Man, the Mandalorian is already a gritty Western. Like having it be an urban Western doesn't wouldn't change much, but it's still a different feel. And you still saw the residential housing, sort of. You know, you saw that concrete architecture. So it, it even ties back into the other TV shows. So I'm going to go yes that. Though if it, it, I don't know if I can be nostalgic for seven days ago, but. When his music played and his ship came out from hiding behind the rocks, just like it did when in the um, space asteroid fight uh, in the first episode, I, I kind of like that, too. I, maybe that's too new to count as nostalgia, but I, I love that moment, just the callback to that, three days ago. That was really cool. I also like seeing the TIE Interceptors. That was really neat. Um, okay. I think that's that's it for Nostalgic Moment of the episode. All right. Do you have any concluding thoughts about this episode as we move into next week? I liked it. I didn't mind that it was an unrelated to Mandalorian Mandalorian episode. I actually even minded that less than how I felt when Mando took over two episodes of Book of Boba Fett. Now, that one I didn't mind because it was the best episodes of the Book of Boba Fett. But I was okay with it because of how it tied in before and because I have faith that it's going to come back around. Right now, I'm actually unhappy with how much I don't understand what the hell is going on with the Coruscant subplot, but I have faith that they will bring it home next episode. If they don't, it's too long, and then I'm actually upset that they're not doing right by the audience by leaving us hanging and confused for too long. But if they bring it home in a week, then good for you. Cliffhangers can be fun. 
Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they do with Dr. Pershing, how much more of that we get. I feel like it's that part was thrown in to connect us to the Ahsoka storyline. I could be wrong, but I know that chapter 18 was the apostate. Chapter 19 was, or no, sorry, chapter 19 was the apostate. Chapter 20, which was this episode, was, I got this all fucked up. The last two episodes was the apostate and the convert. The next one is the foundling. So the next chapter should pretty much be about Grogu. And I think we're going to get from the shot in the trailer, the flashback to Order 66. I think we're going to get that in the next episode. So I, as a group, as somebody who watches the show 50 to 75 percent of the reason I watch is Grogu scenes. The idea that we're getting a chapter called the foundling is so exciting to me now. They probably are playing with they're probably playing with Mando a little bit. Did you know know he was a foundling? He'll tell you about it. Mando's a foundling. There's probably a bunch of other foundlings around the armor right now. But I do think we're going to get a lot of Grogu stuff in the next episode. What you don't know, Pershing's about to be adopted. He's going to be a foundling. He's putting on a helmet. Put a helmet, get him, get him into the living waters, and then all of a sudden he can be part of the creed. He can walk the path. It can be. This is the way. I, I know, I, I like it. Like new converts, they get a pass on anything. They can be bathed in any waters when they first put on the helmet. It's only when you join the path and then leave that it's harder to come back. Guess so. That's very in tune with a lot of real world religions. We'll let you in regardless of what you did. But once you're in, you better walk the way, my man. Yeah, don't don't get out of step. Otherwise, it's really tough to come back a second time. All right. So there we go. That's the end of the chapter, end of the episode. Thanks, Jamie, for joining me. We'll be back next week with Chapter 20. That is Episode 4 of an eight-season episode. So we may get Spencer back next week, or we may get him on the fifth episode of the the season. I'm not 100% sure on that. But in any case, Jamie and I will be here to review The Foundling. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoy your week.